Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. We're thrilled to welcome Patrick Shu, Assistant Professor of Bioengineering at UC Berkeley and co-founder of the ARC Institute to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us, Patrick. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Michael Bell. Let's kick things off, Patrick. Can you share a brief introduction with us? Thanks so much for having me today. I'm you know, really excited to tell you more about our work, what we're building at ARC in our lab, and more broadly, how we think the future of biotechnology is going to advance over the years and decades to come. I'm a molecular and genome biologist by training, and our group works on the development of new molecular technologies, its applications to control and manipulate the genome um, at scale, and the advancement of these new capabilities for manipulating genetic information and genetic circuits into new types of gene and cell therapies. We do a lot of basic science in the lab at the intersection of experimentation and computation, but often really with an applied mindset, we think backwards from real world problems and try to you know, solve them in the lab. We think about what do people want? How can we create new capabilities? That, that's the kind of stuff that keeps us up at night and going to the lab early. And, and Patrick, in addition to your research at Berkeley, you're innovating the way science is funded at the ARC Institute. Throughout your journey, if you can share a little bit more, kind of what's been your North Star, the, the guiding principle, if you will, behind your decisions here? Yeah, so I've been doing science for uh, most of my life. I think my default fate in life was probably to be some sort of software engineer. But the problems in tech often just didn't really excite me as a young student or as an adolescent. And when I was 11 or so, my grandfather, who was living with us at the time, started his journey along the sort of long, slow decline of Alzheimer's disease. And he was living with us at the time, and I watched him go through mild cognitive impairment, increasing disorientation, and I realized the resources that we have today, all the knowledge, all the technologies, really aren't going to help him. And I simply just wanted to learn more about what was going on. And so in high school, I started working in a research lab at the local university and got extremely lucky to be paired with just incredible mentors who really gave me a, a shot. And I basically worked at the bench for essentially full time for a couple of years before college and throughout undergrad and really got enamored with the idea that we might be able to actually use molecular biology to control the brain 
and understand how it works. And so that's what has brought me here today is that really early experience working in the lab, realizing I just loved it. And I haven't really stopped since. In terms of what my North Star has been, for me, it's just, what do I like doing every day? I like learning. I like working with smart people. And I like trying things and not being told what to do. And that's been the type of feeling that I really try to strive to create in the lab. And think there are a few different maybe archetypes really coarsely, I think, that make certain scientists really successful if you observe them at work or, you know, collaborate with them. You know, I, I would say some people are really technically strong and very good at executing on things at the bench. Others have this ability to just never give up, right? And when you're working in a field that's punctuated by 90% failures, I think that definitely, you know, can be really discouraging. There's 10 downs for every up, but if you can somehow put your blinders on and just really focus on the things that you care about, the things that are working and develop that mindset of persistence, I think that really gets selected for over time and makes people successful. And so for me, it's really just been persistence and some sort of gut intuition about the types of problems that I like working on. And so really just working on interesting problems that feel exciting. It's, it, it's hard to explain, but that's the entirety of what drives me. It's work on interesting problems, try to do something that will help people, try to make something that people want. Thanks, Patrick. And as you talk about problem solving here, I think that's closely tied to one of the questions that we love to ask our guests as we kick off episodes. This question comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you mm -hmm. share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? So I work in genome engineering primarily, where you have these platform technologies, which have in a way a bit of embarrassment of riches, right? There are lots of different things that you can imagine doing with the fundamental ability to manipulate any nucleic acid in any living cell, right? But you have to think about the problems that you want to solve, rather than just thinking forwards from how to create new things, right? And I think inventing the future is thinking about a real world problem. It could be a disease. It could be a function, the ability to manufacture something, to endow cells with some sort of synthetic function, and then think from first principles about what it would take to, to make that. And really, what are the different weapons that I need to have in order to attack this problem, right? I think in scientific training, you have this seeding effect where you sort of end up in some lab based on wherever uh, someone is willing to take a chance on you. And then you train in that area and it might be electrical engineering, it might be computer science, it might be molecular biology, protein biochemistry, in vivo electrophysiology, what have you. And that training marks the types of problems that you think about and the types of experiments that you're able to do, right? And for me, as a bioengineering professor, bioengineering is ultimately a very loose term, right? And I think a traditional discipline like molecular biology or biochemistry or genetics, I think of as a collection of 
knowledge and a collection of techniques, right? And for me, bioengineering is really just connecting all of those different weapons across these different fields in order to attack the problem that you care about, right? And so if you have the ability not to be scoped by what you know how to do, but really by the problem that you can articulate and want to solve, I think that's really how you can start to invent things in the lab, just by having the ability to tinker across a variety of different methodologies and concepts. So we end up reading a lot, a lot of weird papers in lab, you know, old biochemistry papers from the 70s and 80s, not, not just the sort of weekly kind of big papers that, that everyone monitors on a regular basis, but really traversing strange, unexplored areas. And so that's really where I spend a lot of time thinking about. For example, in the last week, I've been reading a lot about the placenta, right? And the really unique role that the placenta has in being able to form this fetal maternal immune interface. It's really a totally understudied area, really has not entered the sort of you know era of modern genomics, but I think it's a super exciting biological interface. And science is full of these kinds of things. The more kind of underexplored ideas and areas you can start to connect together, you'll, you, you inevitably start to come up with new ideas and insights, and then you just have to go and test them. That's the point of lab. Thanks, Patrick. And to dive into that further, I'll pass off to Michael now to talk about the shoe lab and the development of new molecular tools. Thank you, Chaz. So Patrick, your lab at Berkeley is pioneering new molecular technologies to improve human health. Can you share a bit more about the work that's going on at the shoe lab? Yeah, absolutely. So we have probably three pillars in the lab. The first is the development of new molecular tools for synthetic biology. The second is what I would call functional genomics. So applications of these capabilities at a really high throughput scale to manipulate the genome and try to understand the interactions between genotype and phenotype. And the third is, is really trying to test them in real world applications, whether that's delivering them with the appropriate potency and selectivity to primary cells or tissues, figuring out how they can be used to create new capabilities or new applications, and just generally exploring the downstream consequences of, of new ways of manipulating the genome. So I'm a human geneticist by training, but the funny thing is we spend a lot of the time in the lab actually thinking about microbes and phages and sort of the weird world of prokaryotic biology, right? Which I don't necessarily have, you know, sort of necessarily innate interest in or a deep kind of academic underpinning, but, you know, we're really just driven by the problems that we want to solve. And one of the things that we've really realized over the years is that new molecular tools often have deep underlying biology, right? And as engineers, we can try to create things from a, in a bottoms up type of way and engineer certain parts together. But it often turns out evolution is actually way smarter than we are and has actually developed a lot of the solutions to these challenges already, right? And so we develop computational methods and pl platforms to look at the really exploding diversity of the prokaryotic uh, genome and metagenome sequences, mine them to try to find interesting new enzyme systems or 
non-coding systems that might have properties as geoengineering systems, and then test them in bacteria, in vitro, and in human cells to try to develop new tools for mammalian synthetic biology, whether that's genome editing, lineage tracing, uh, molecular recording, or what have you. We, we were sort of just try to be imaginative about what these things are able to do. One of the cool things about this phage host arms race, in my mind, is that it really is the interface that has birthed almost all of the key tools that underpin modern molecular biology, from restriction modification systems and CRISPR systems and bacterial hosts that defend themselves against foreign invaders, and the recombinases or transposases or other systems that are employed by their phage invaders to try to diversify uh, and spread, right? And this sort of arms race of attack and defend and escape has led to incredible mechanistic diversity. And we're really excited about understanding the, the potential of these for being able to build a future of biotechnology. This has already led to recombinant DNA, to the CRISPR evolution. And some of the more recent work from our group and collaborators has been to identifying new systems that have natural mechanistic advantages over CRISPR-based homologous recombination for doing large-scale genome insertion. And we really think the central the sort of dogma that we've built over the last decade around gene editing, uh, where you create double-strand breaks in the cell, provide a homology repair template, and sort of sit back and let the cell make the change that you want is, you know, the, the writing is on the wall there. Right. And we think they're going to be much more deterministic systems for being able to do this. I think of the guide RNA, early mouse, right? Sort of the, the Xerox Alto, I think, was one of the first computers or maybe the first computer to be sold with, with a mouse. And the guide RNA allows us to sort of move a cursor around the genome. But our mouse is actually really bad. So imagine if we had a, a device where every time we click on the genome, you know, it, it, it sort of has some possible set of outcomes that you can't really control very well. Sometimes it makes no change. Sometimes it makes a deletion. Sometimes it makes a big translocation. And it just really isn't very deterministic, right? And so I think in general, the world of synthetic biology is going to trend towards making technologies that are more robust and more reproducible and so we can start to build a layer of apps that allow us to control the hardware of the genome with just more deterministic genetic software, so to speak. And the funny thing is in tech, for example, there's the, this sort of dominant idea of product market fit. It's such a sort of entrenched idea and core, a core concept that there are these t-shirts that say, you know, make something people want. I mean, that's, I think, a Y Combinator uh, t-shirt. But in, in biotech, we have the opposite problem, right? We have a major technical risk. And I think the product market fit is very clear. It's major unmet medical need, right? And so the thing that's really holding us back, I think, is what, 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 I, what I increasingly think of as enterprise biology, right? Just how can we build tools and capabilities that will allow us to do things that work every single time 
rather than right now, where a lot of the times we try to scale a particular process that we've modeled in a dish and try to bring it to a sort of clinical grade uh, concept or a manufacturing scale protocol. And, you know, things start to kind of fall apart in the middle. And just figuring out a lot of the underlying biology, you know, that will allow us to control these processes more predictably is going to allow us to start to, I think, really start to accelerate the field more quickly. Thank you for sharing that, Patrick. And it really is quite fascinating as we view the evolution of biology towards you know, greater determinism. And I loved how you coined the term enterprise biology. So let's double click on that last term a bit. Uh, what are some of the key inflection points that you think scientists and investors should look out for as biology starts to transition towards more of, say, an enterprise system? Yeah, so let's take one example, nuclease-based genome editing, right? You kind of make a break in a genome. This is an SOS, a really evolutionarily conserved SOS response where the cell says, hey, I don't like my genome getting broken. Let's stitch it back together, right? Really, really, really fundamental process. And our key insight as genome engineers was to figure out targeted double-stranded breaks could actually lead to, you know, targeted repair. And so if we could actually break the genome in the right place, right, we could start to make changes, you know, at specific genes that we care about, whether by trying to turn them off via loss of function or by making uh, small changes with these homology-directed repair templates, right, which, which we kind of call genome editing today. I think the thing that people with these simple models tend to maybe paper over or oversimplify is the idea of product purity, right? Sort of each editing event or each knockout event, what percent of the modified cells are wild type? What percent are knockouts? And what type of knockout? What's the spectrum of indels that you're getting at that site? And, you know, what's the type of repair? And then that's all the, the really sort of small scale, right? What are the sort of larger scale consequences that are much harder to measure? using our current techniques and approaches like translocations, chromothripsis, large deletions and rearrangements, transcriptional consequences, activation of uh, certain DNA damage or uh, transcriptional pathways, just sort of making that when, when you sort of kick off this cascade by creating a double-stranded break, lots of things happen, right? And we, are, we, we don't do a great job at measuring what's going on and quantifying that really clearly. And so I think part of the challenge here is that we really rely on endogenous DNA repair processes to kind of be the final arbiter of what the edit reaction is actually leading to, right? And you get all kinds of different undesired outcomes, but if we measure only the outcome that we want, right? Then, you know, then, then you can report your, you know, 30% knockout number or whatever in your figure, right? But in a sort of therapeutic setting or in a high throughput genetic screen, right? A lot of these other consequences actually really do matter. And they sort of affect the data that the final data or the interpretation that you're able to make from the experiment. And so this is really why I'm interested in, in like just better developer tools for the genome, right? Where you can just get more clarity and determinism and quantification of what you're trying to do. 
And I think next generation genome editing tools are going to start to provide, you know, some of the first steps forward, you know, away from these. And I think techniques like base and prime editing are certainly already doing so. These are, you know, similarly limited to really small scale changes. So you could really think of it as single locus editing, right? And I think gene scale or genome scale edits, which will have to be at the kilobase to megabase to gigabase scale, right? Are, I think, clear trends that, you know, we're going to enable through combination of better enzymes, better gene synthesis, better molecular assembly methods, and uh, better ability to deliver this type of DNA or kind of stitching systems into living cells. So lots, this is when the flywheel, you know, starts to really move is the sort of confluence of lots of different lines of advancing technologies being combined in interesting ways. And I think being able to support and accelerate all of these different areas, since they're going to be required to combine together into a specific technology package, I think it's going to be really important. Right. Like every tool, you really stand on the shoulders of giants that came before you, right? None of these CRISPR tools would have been possible, or the field certainly wouldn't have moved as quickly without a lot of the sort of key fundamental insights having been worked out in the zinc finger and tail field before us, right? I just, just, if you just sort of map out the first five years of Cas9, right, the things that we were doing, making Nikkei's mutants, making transcriptional activators, making epigenetic repressors, making inducible chemically and light inducible domains. A lot of these kind of key technology um, development campaigns were really uh, kind of directly inspired by concepts that had been worked out with previous generations of genome editing tools, right? I think the real impact has just been how easy it was, right? And how quickly you know, any lab could pick it up. And now it's used in, you know, basically any lab that touches genetics or molecular biology, right? But all tools have their rise and fall, like, like Roman empires. And we're already, you know, seeing the, you know, impact and the promise of molecular tools beyond CRISPR. And as an inventor, right, I, I, my job is to, you know, think about what that future is going to look like and, you know, try to help build it. Absolutely. And, and as you've been mentioning, there are a lot of exciting challenges for genetics and molecular biology labs to explore and have impact on. So how does the shoe lab set its scientific agenda? How do you prioritize projects to have the greatest scientific and societal impact? You know, that's a great question. I think there are a few ways that we do it. The first is working with the individual trainees in the lab to really think about the types of problems that we that they want to solve, right? Since they're really sort of two different, maybe in the most like coarse, oversimplified sense, in the lab you have people and you have specific scientific projects, right? But ultimately I think science is really driven forward by individual people who are able to, for whatever reason, figure things out, right? And if we gave a particular hard scientific problem that was particularly hard to 10 different people, and then only one or two of them are able to solve it, 
you might ask why, right? What are the key insights that they're able to put together or be in the right place at the right time to combine in order to uh, really get something to work, right? And especially when you're in the business of invention, we think a lot about not just feasibility, but also about timing, right? Is, is my idea ahead of its time, right? Do I have the right technologies or capabilities today to actually give it a fair shake, right? And you see this for lots of really cool technologies, right? For example, uh, spatial transcriptomics or spatial genomics is really hot today, right? But lots of people have actually worked on it for you know, decades and in different or tackle different edges of this type of problem for a long time. But just our ability to do molecular barcoding, next-gen sequencing readouts, to build the really high-resolution microscopes to have the right types of probe sets, right? Just all of these things had to come together to give us, you know, what we have today. And you can analyze any, the history of any biotechnology, I think, with a similar lens, right? And so the question is, why us and why now, right? And just, and, and, and then just despite all that, really just giving it a go, right? So our process in the lab is really what I would call something akin to science talk therapy, right? Where, you know, people come to the lab with a certain set of skills and background, right? And they often will say, oh, I want, I'm really interested in X, Y, Z problem, right? And then I think, so my, my first step is just to take a, to pressure test this a little bit, sort of what are the assumption, assumptions or axioms or reasons why you care about something? What got you attracted to this area? I'll send you a paper. Tell me what you think about this paper. Let's talk about it. Here's what I think about the paper. I'll send you another paper based on your reaction. And then we kind of bounce papers and ideas back and forth. Right, and in you can do this in one-on-one -on -one meetings, you can do this in subgroup meetings, or you can do this in an, a larger scale in lab meeting, right, with the with the whole group. Right, and so this is really how I think you set or or develop a scientific way of thinking. You train taste for a problem and problem selection, and you know just overall try to get better together. Right. I think our lab is really flat in the sense that we really try to encourage everyone to speak. Right. I think fundamentally, it doesn't really matter what your level of training or education is. That's just how long you've been in the system. Right. But people's fundamental creativity, I don't think is, is necessarily that correlated with, you know, how how long they've been studying for, right? And you really just maybe have more experience or you have more knowledge about what would work or what wouldn't work. But we all know that, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you really need to just have a fundamentally different set of assumptions in order to get this zero to one stuff to really pop, right? And so, you know, we, we all just try to push each other to think about things from first principles develop a shared set of taste for a problem. I think this is why science has always been built on these essentially one-on-one -on -one apprenticeship models, right? It's from, from the very beginning, right? And I think why 
the sort of process of scientific discovery and where it happens can tend to be non-random is there is clearly something that gets passed down in terms of tacit knowledge, problem selection, when to push and when to drop something, knowing when to call a go, no go. These are the kinds of things that I learned from my advisors um, when I was training. And I try to pick up from my collaborators and colleagues and mentors when I talk to them about science and the kinds of things that we try to pass down or share with each other in the group, right? So, so that's, that's our problem or, or our process for problem selection is just reading lots of papers and talking about them. We're of course unified in some sense by a shared set of techniques or capabilities in molecular and cellular biology, protein biochemistry, computational biology, massively parallel reporter assays, engineered viruses, things like that. So, you know, there are other labs that might be world experts in certain types of mouse models or creating new types of chemical probes or developing really fancy high resolution microscopes or creating new microfluidic devices. And I think one of the most incredible things about science is that you can just collaborate with them, right? And just go down the streets or you know, a few miles away and talk to a world expert, literally in that area. And so, so where's the rub, right? I think the pressure is you need to figure out how to set up that collaboration. You need to be able to identify what that expertise is since they're probably, you know, unless you get lucky, not knocking your door saying, oh, I have this really interesting problem that we just need you, right? Let's work on this together. But if you actually start to think about from first principles, what are the kinds of techniques that we would need, right, to solve this problem? I fulfill this set of them. Who are the other Avengers that we would need to assemble this team, right? It actually gets easier, right, over time, the more you rack your brain, right? I kind of think about this like asking a good question in a talk, right? A lot of my students often ask me, you know, how, how do you ask good questions at a seminar um, or at a conference? And no, I don't really know, but to the extent I know anything, I think you just need to practice, right? I, for example, I think if you sit through a talk and you don't think about questions, it becomes actually harder to think of one next time because you get nervous, you're under the gun, you're not sure if you've articulated your question clearly or cleverly, but if you just start practicing it, you don't even need to ask it. You can just write it down in your phone or your laptop or your notebook. It, it gets easier over time. And so just it's practice, persistence, just trying to think through things really clearly. That, that's how you kind of happen, hopefully, on important problems. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community. Sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Well, that's exciting. So like you had mentioned, with so many meaningful problems, your lab's approach is to kind of balance first principles thinking the timing, and then the like, real mentorship to, to, as you had mentioned, like assemble the Avengers and through practice and persistence, really 
you know, as mentioned, like invent the future. And so I, I, I think it would be great to maybe pivot a bit more into your work with the ARC Institute. But before we dive into it, it would be really valuable to perhaps overview the way that science is done today. So Patrick, could you help us set the stage? Of what is the process of modern academia and, and how does it contribute to scientific discovery? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think it will depend slightly on the university that you're at. Uh, if you're at a traditional university departments or at a medical school, if you're in biomedical research versus the physical sciences, or if you're in the US or in Europe or in other countries. But I think for kind of American biomedical research universities, the number one way that you get funding for your work is through the NIH, right? The National Institutes of Health, uh, which is funded by uh, US taxpayers. And the NIH has a massive annual budget, right? For the, in, the intramural and extramural programs combined are over $50 billion a year on annual spend, right? And over, over $40 billion a year for grants that go to researchers um, at different universities, medical schools, and research institutes. And in many ways, this is the, the key lifeblood for a career in biomedical research. People often will be able to supplement their work with uh, kind of private funding from scientific foundations or grants making organizations. But by and large, uh, sort of for major multi-year annual grants, it's, it's really going to be the NIH, right? And these, fund, uh, these, these grant sources basically fund your salary, they fund your research personnel, and they, they fund all the reagents and equipment that you often, you know, buy in your lab and, and use to just, you know, run things every day. And so we spend a lot of time writing grants. We spend a lot of time doing experiments, writing papers, using those as a measure of our productivity in order to justify getting you know, new ideas and new grants. But I think what, there are a few kind of fundamental challenges to a system that has to adjudicate so many different grants and distribute so much capital on an annual basis. Right? I think the first is bureaucracy, right? It's, it's sort of, I think it's sort of well known that it's, it's very hard to, you know, get grant funding, right? Pay lines have been dropping precipitously over the last couple of decades. The sort of standard modular R01 grant hasn't increased in many years, while salary and the cost of reagents and equipment has, you know, is, is increasing massively. Productivity potentially seems to be decreasing as we become increasingly dependent in research on really complex biomedical tooling. It can take you know, over a year to get a grant from the time that you start writing it to the time that you get money can be well over a year. And that's if you're successful the first time. It's not counting resubmissions and things like that. And I think there, there, so there, there are a lot of challenges, but it's important to counterbalance that with how incredible this is and what an incredible privilege it is, right? To be able to have a life of science to 
follow curiosity-driven problems to develop new biotechnologies and try to use them to help society, right? I think the bull case on the NIH is it is the, an institution that is the single biggest driver of biomedical progress and the modern biotechnology and pharmaceutical industry for the, over the last half century, right? I think the, the bear case is the structural challenges and bureaucracy that has been built around such an incredible machine and vision is making us really fall short of our potential. And so while the modern research system has yielded tremendous successes, like cell therapies, mRNA technology, CRISPR technology, and what have you, and it feels like over the next decades, many major challenges in life sciences should be within our grasp. The fundamental question is, is the system built to allow us to reach that potential, right? And what are the things that we can do try to make sure that happens, right? And so, so those are the kinds of things that we talk a lot about, right? I think every practicing scientist deeply feels both the privilege and the responsibility, but then also the challenges and the problems of the system in our bones, right? So the real question is, what can we do about it, right? And I think, you know, these are some of the things that I've been thinking about really deeply over the last two years and working with a set of long-time colleagues to try to model certain attempts at, you know, attacking some of these problems, right? You know, just really basic, simple things that we're trying to do to just see, you know, how much can the system change? And I think the really surprising thing that we found is that there's actually a lot of potential to, to do good in the system or to try to improve it. So in March, April, 2020, for example, I helped to stand up a private grants making organization called Fast Grants, where the initial idea was really simple and very humble. It was just, can we provide rapid grant funding for COVID-19 research that isn't currently being funded, right? At a time when we're all waiting to try to hear back from my NIH program officers if we could repurpose our funding because most of us, you know, as you can imagine, haven't really been funded to work on global pandemics. And we initially thought, hey, we'd probably be able to fund folks, you know, folks at, at some university that's kind of overlooked and we'll be able to kind of wire you the money as quickly as your university can receive it. It's just a short 30 minute Google Forms application, no preliminary data required. And we ended up distributing over 50 million over the next year to over 200 labs and organizations. And a lot of these were, you know, like we were just overwhelmed by thousands of incredibly high quality applications by researchers all over the world at top places. And in, in some sense, we were just doing like really simple things, funding uh, projects in basic immunology, clinical trials, uh, new vaccine concepts, and so on. And I think one thing that uh, really struck me was towards the end of 2020, when the Delta variant was coming online, and we were increasingly realizing that 
that you know variance surveillance it's going to be really important we as in the system a lot of these sort of sequencing labs around the country that have the that sort of provide our infrastructure for variance surveillance are critically underfunded right and simply by finding them contacting them and funding them we estimate that in the first half of 2021 we five or six x the national capacity for variant surveillance right and I think that's that was just a very simple thing. I just identified the problem, figure out what it is because we're scientists and we can go through GSAID and figure out who's depositing sequencing information and and just you know step into this gap, right? And at a time when this the system is really stretched and strained, there are just lots of gaps, right? And I and and this really gave us, I think, a lot of conviction that there are gaps and that there are ways that we can really help even though in the macro sense the problem seems really intractable and inscrutable just action action alone um, can make a big difference and one of the cool things that's come out of fast grants has just been uh, a whole bunch of other fast grants like efforts Right, that are trying to expand this model of just really rapid, low bureaucracy, no red tape funding to different areas, including climate change, longevity, and other areas. And I think that's many in many ways what makes something really successful is that it's able to create a broader impact through efforts to try to take the elements of it that really worked well. Right. So, for example, I think. The Broad Institute, right, is one of the major successes in American life sciences uh, institutions over the last couple of decades. And I think lots of places think about how how can we, you know, replicate the Broad or how can we replicate the Whitehead and try to create these sort of more flexible, focused models for doing really executing on research more effectively. And I think. Fast Grants has given us appetite to take bigger swings. And my co-founders and I last year announced a new research institute uh, called the ARC Institute that's based uh, here in the Bay Area and partnered with Stanford and UC Berkeley and UCSF to try to model you know, our, our attempt solving what we think of as some of the challenges in how we do science, right? Not just on how we fund it, which we started working on together on fast grants, but how we can really organize, all right, you know, efforts to execute life sciences uh, projects. Thinking really through from first principles, what are the incentive structures and the cultural elements that are required to, you know, build successful organizations, successful research organizations, and how can we construct more carefully the types of incentives that we want to have in place, right? I think we, you know, today we have a very different culture of doing science. We have a very different set of just economic realities, technology capabilities and technology needs. And, uh, you know, we want to really just combine that into sort of a modern vision for how we should be doing it today, right? where we really, again, stand on the shoulders of giants, 
right? Shamelessly, you know, borrowing elements from previous really successful experiments on how to organize life sciences institutions, including HHMI, the Broad Institute, the Whitehead, the Crick, the Max Planck Institutes in Germany, and so on. I think we really are combining those into, you know, I think it really in a new way or in a unique way, the, the, these elements into one umbrella at ARC, including physical co-location of top faculty at these sort of three flagship universities here in the Bay Area, right? Providing collaboration and training opportunities for, for students, you know, at the partner universities that has never really happened before in history, providing our investigators long-term research funding so that they can basically pursue whatever projects that they want in a curiosity-driven way and a goal-directed fashion, really where you can just fund your whole lab and just see what, how does that change the types of problems that you want to work on. With Fast Grants, we asked our, our grantees, you know, if you had you know, the sort of funding that your lab has now, but, you know, you didn't have to write project-based grants for it. How much would your research program change? And 80% of them said a lot, a lot, right? Which, which really surprised us, actually. It made us think this seeding effect of, I got trained to do X, and therefore I do X or X prime, has a really strong effect on the system, right? And if you just, enable a way so that other people can be funded and incentivized culturally to work together, you know, we can tackle the kind of much bigger and more complex problems and complex human disease that, that we really face today, right? Where we're clearly going to have to move beyond single target biology, right? Drugging individual genes or identifying individual genetic components of diseases or pathways and understanding their complex combinatorics combining, you know, just new advanced approaches for being able to do these genetic manipulations, the complex computation and machine learning that will need to actually interpret these changes, modern integrative omic methods to read out those perturbations and understand their complex interactions, and then also develop better model systems, including better cellular models like organoids or assembloids with robust reproducible scale in order to model human diseases, developing better large animal models to address these, the off-lamented gap of translation between rodents and humans, kind of combining these technology centers under a single umbrella, working in close collaboration with the core investigators so that we can, you know, tackle these bigger challenges, kind of what, what are the kinds of, you know, science that we'd be able to unlock, right? So I think that would be our bull case is that our scientists rate that the, you know, they feel more unconstrained right, in the system that we're setting up at ARC, that we're able to really, really work on the problems that we care about and unlock research programs that wouldn't be able to happen otherwise at a normal departments and not just, you know, within the lab, but also on our labs themselves. So it really seems like an innovative approach to try to address some of the, the perhaps financial and operational inefficiencies that, you know, the current academic model may be facing. 
you know, as you had mentioned, we, we do stand on the shoulders of giants and you know, the working model has, has had significant benefit to society. But as you had mentioned, the, the pandemic has really helped to show some of that white space in, in where perhaps you know, we as a scientific community could uh, try to accelerate certain endeavors like elucidating mm-hmm. complex diseases. So, you know, it sounds like the ARC Institute really likes to select for an individual thinker, someone who's very passionate and is, is excited to take initiative in exploring issues and, and, and opportunities on the scientific front. Can you maybe share a bit more with us about that culture that ARC is building and, and what kind of scientist or perhaps graduate student that ARC would be looking for? Yeah, thanks for that question. I think in science, there are many really under-tapped populations of talents, right? Where in our current model, we have a lot of launch pads, right? But we don't have very many landing pads for scientists beyond their training period to continue to follow a problem or work in basic science, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of imagine if you're in your mid, late 30s, right? You're in a high cost of living geographic area. You've done all of this education and postdoctoral training. Maybe you want to have a family, but your starting salary as a, as a sort of staff scientist in, the, in, in a normal academic lab or university could be something like 60 to 70K, right? It could be less, it could be more, but you know, this, this, is just, this just makes it really challenging to retain the best talent in the sector, right? And of the 95% of folks who don't become tenure track faculty and run their own labs, you know, what happens to them, right? The, you know, they, they tend to go into like for-profit enterprises and, you know, go, go work at, at pharma companies, right? Or biotech companies. And, you know, just, you know, to be clear, I think that's great, right? You know, we, you know, we, we actively do spin outs from the lab and are really interested in drug development. But I don't think that's the ideal outcome for everybody, right? And so one of the things that we care a lot about at ARC is developing a career path, a long-term attractive career path at ARC within our technology centers for research scientists, for group leaders, for EIRs who have an interesting idea that they need a lab and you know, smart people around them to really support them to execute on these you know, kind of key gating experiments over let's say a year period, right? Uh, a lot of these folks you know, in industry are seeing a lot of uh, value creation from, from basic science labs and want to get back into it. The question is how, right? We, we'd like to provide a home for, for this type of talent. Right? I just think there's so many different sets of people that will benefit from kind of more flexible models. Well, I really liked how you said that there were a lot of launch pads, but not many landing pads. I, I think that's maybe a good way of summing it up. And as a student myself, I, I frequently hear my, my colleagues in their PhD programs mentioning how they would you know, love to continue the work that they're doing or, or try to take it to the next level, but it's, it's always difficult to look forward when the next few steps are, are perhaps a bit uncertain. And perhaps to, to pivot a little bit into the professors who are also interested in translating their research into clinical use and, and to help to address 
treating conditions like cancer and, and saving lives, how would you recommend aspiring academic entrepreneurs look forward to the translational process when they're pioneering in their labs? Or in other words, how should professors and students and postdocs who hope to one day translate their research shift the way that they're performing their research today to keep in mind what may be coming in the future? I think learning about biotech coming from a world of basic science should be approached like learning a new language, right? It might be, it might have certain key commonalities in terms of grammar or vocabulary or homonyms with your native basic science language, but there's a very different set of people, a very different culture, a different set of traditions and know-how and history in, in biotech and drug development. And the first thing to do is to, you know, learn, right? I, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of assumptions and stereotypes that come from oversimplification, fear, gatekeeping, or just plain uh, ignorance, right? And I think when I was a graduate student, right, there wasn't nearly as much knowledge uh, about this as there is today. There, today, there are all kinds of incubators, educational resources, startup accelerators, lots of training opportunities. And frankly, I find that really exciting. And I think it's healthy for the system, right? I, I kind of think of it like the, you know, like Silicon Valley over a decade ago, right? Maybe in the sort of the early days of YC, right? We had all kinds of, we, we had a certain infrastructure and tradition for how venture capital funding worked, right? And that sort of key insight around YC was that there are probably 10 to 20 times more startups that could happen if we simply encouraged and provided the resources for more entrepreneurs to you know, pursue their ideas. And I think that's, that's sort of happening in, in biology today, right? Is we fundamentally start out, I think, with a smaller population, right? Just the sort of deep technical expertise that you need in biology, right? Takes time to, to get into. And a lot of this has to do with just the amount of time that it takes to get into biology in the first place. I, 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 I think I, had, I was unusually lucky to get a very early start in my early high school years, right, uh, into a university lab, right? Just like a lot of folks in tech start coding, right, in their, you know, pre-teens or teens or even as a child, right? But that's, you know, that was unusual then. It's increasingly, you know, it increasingly happens today, right? I think computer science is becoming an integral part of lots of early curricula. I think the biotech revolution is going to surge over the, over, over the next decade, I think due to these sort of earlier structural changes, but just cultivating our, our talent pool, but then also just making sure that we have the, the right mentorship structure around young biotech founders or young uh, biotech entrepreneurs is, is going to be really key, right? For example, I would say maybe, gosh, five, 10 years ago, it was really daring, I think, still to 
drop out of college and start a tech company, right? We have a few really famous examples of this with Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, et cetera, what have you. But it, it was hard to do. And today, I would actually say it's incredibly easy, right? There is a huge amount of infrastructure and support and mentorship networks and funding availability for, for young tech founders to drop out of college and start a company. And we're starting to build that, that know-how and infrastructure for, I think, biotech scientists today. And so it's going to be a combination of developing this talent pool and expanding it. Biotech has been historically really quite a niche industry, right? Really expanding this available talent pool. I think it's going to happen in parallel with enterprise biology technology, right? Just building better tools and capabilities that are robust and not just novel, but reproducible and precise is going to, it's, it's, it's going to, uh, I think, clearly create a step change for the field and makes me super excited for the future. That's a fantastic perspective. And thank you so much for you know, sharing your thoughts on, on all of these different topics. Before we wrap up, uh, we'd like to ask just a few closing questions to cap things off. So first, uh, it takes the efforts of both academia and industry to improve human health, as you had alluded to. What can each sector learn from each other? I think one of the things that I take back to my academic lab, based on what I see from industry, is how to manage bigger teams, right? In academia, we have a very strange reporting structure where you have one professor uh, with, you know, in a large lab, they can have 30 direct reports, right? I don't think this would happen in any other industry. And making sure that you have a scalable, effective mentoring and management infrastructure in academia, I think is going to really improve the average outcome right, of, of a trainee and be able to build that sort of infrastructure and mentorship structure for being able to just help develop talents in a really kind of deliberate way is, 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 is going to be really important. And I think academia, it's, it's, things are often a little ad hoc, right? And I think that variance is actually partially what is super special about the system and it increases the ceiling, but it's also important to raise the floor, right? I think in industry, we have a, we have a different problem because it's so capital intensive, right? Uh, the instant you start to have something that looks like a product or a development candidate and you start thinking about moving to the clinic, there's this common thing that happens where the early appetite and you know, funding for discovery and kind of innovative R&D often really dries up in the race towards the clinic. Right. And I diagnosed sort of two fundamental problems. The first is it's one is it's related to capital intensity and reducing technical risk, but also just due to the lack of uh, reproducibility between what we see in an animal model uh, in IND enabling studies and what we think might happen in the clinic with complex endpoints. Right. And so the problem though is if you're your, your play, you know, fails or it gives you an unclear signal, right? 
do you have a platform that's strong enough to give you another really strong shot on goal, right? Versus becoming essentially like a single asset play and then, you know, puttering away from there, right? So I think maintaining a really strong and innovative R&D culture has to be the long-term lifeblood of biotech companies so that we can see companies grow from being small cap, publicly traded biotech companies subject to immense volatility in the market to growing up to becoming uh, development stage companies in their own right, right? And to the, at the level of a Vertex or Regeneron or a Moderna or what have you, I think is, is going to change what we think of as value creation events in industry to move away from you know, M&A as like a major milestone of career success to impact on patients. So Patrick, as we look ahead, what would you characterize as the grand challenges facing life sciences? That's a great question. I think in the macro sense, creating an influx of talent into the life sciences. I feel like if we can create or understand the cultural lexicon that makes young people want to get into biology, that's, you know, just we need to get the world's best talent thinking about these problems. I think the second will be making sure that we can maintain or reach the potential of the progress that we think we can achieve with all these biotechnologies. Developing effective structures and systems to advance things at the rate that we think is possible. It's the people, it's the technologies, and ultimately just making useful things for the world and for patients. Yeah, those like just realizing that, that vision. Reducing the technical risk, you know, making things that, that, you know, that people want and just learning along the way and having fun. I think, I think that's what it's all about. Well, I can appreciate how you took a systems level view, chatting more about talent and organization and productivity as a whole. And so let's extend off of that. Let's say it's now 2050 and some of those challenges have maybe not been faced, but we're working through them a bit better now. It's 2050, where are we in biotechnology? I think 30 years from now, I really hope we move beyond the reductionism of molecular biology and genetics to be able to manipulate things at the systems and the tissue scale. This is the kind of stuff that I read growing up on the cover of popular science, right? Can we make engineered organs, right? Can we connect our biological interfaces with computational ones. Uh, I, think, I think there are interesting and early and ambitious shots on goal even today, right? And the fundamental question is, why me and why now? And we're, you know, if, if, we, if we get the right people in and the right technologies in at the right time, right, we'll, we'll start to be able to get to that level, I think. Patrick, do you have any other closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience before we close? One thing that I'd like to say to, you know, the young people out there, and, and maybe, maybe to everyone, is science is hard. Yes, it's punctuated by majority failure, but that's okay. If we can stay persistent, stay calm, stay even, and just focus on the process, we should remember that this is something that is fun. Ultimately, just look for an environment where you can work on problems that excite you 
that make you want to wake up and go to the lab, be around supportive colleagues who can help you when things inevitably go wrong. And then just make sure that you're learning and having fun while you're doing it. That's, that's, it's, that's all we can ask for. So look, look for those things. That's fantastic insight. How can our audience learn more about your work? Feel free to email me. My email is patrick at arcinstitute.org or check out our lab website or find me on Twitter. Always happy to interact. And thanks so much for your time. Patrick, thank you so much for your time. This was really an incredible episode and we are extremely grateful to have you join us, share your time and wisdom with our audience. Thank you again so much for joining. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.